Well, as has been mentioned a couple of times, we're having a one-stop journey today in the book of Exodus, and there are really uh, at least two reasons that we're doing that on this first Sunday of 2020. First and foremost, our prayer, mine has been, is even now, has been prayed multiple times already in today's service by many other people. First and foremost, the aim is that this sermon, by God's grace, be a blessing to all who hear by pointing us to Christ through the book of Exodus. So that's one very clear purpose. And the second is to help prepare our local church and the members of this precious flock of Jesus for our journey over the next several months, January through June, in the book of Exodus in our small group ministry. And so I just want to say a couple of things about our small group ministry before we turn our attention to the text we'll read, which will come from Exodus 14 if you want to find that place. Concerning our small group ministry, first I want to say something about our strategy. How, how we do it. Why we do it. The strategy, uh, I'll limit myself to just this comment, we meet 12 to 18 times per year. There's 365 days, this year there's 366 days. 12 to 18 of those 366 days, we would like to gather together in smaller clusters as members of this faith family to seek the face of the Lord, to encourage each other, to rub shoulders with each other, to seek Christ together. So in those 12 to 18 gatherings, we do that in the fall, we do that in the spring, we take a break in the summer. This past fall, August to December, we did 30-30-30. 30 minutes of sermon application in discussion, 30 minutes of soul care, and 30 minutes of prayer together. So for an hour and a half, August to December, six times we did that. Now in this spring semester, January through June it's going to last, over the course of 24 weeks, we'll meet 12 times once every other week. And we'll do what we call Teleos Academy. That's all I'm going to say about our strategy. Our structure. Our structure for our small group ministry, currently, and it's always subject to change if the Lord so leads, but currently it's members only. Now, let me just admit something to those who are visiting for the first time or having visited many times. We know we're weird. We know we're from the moon. And we're perfectly okay with that. Um, but the reason we do member-only small groups is not because we think we're elitist or some kind of you know, secret club and you've got to know a handshake to get into it. That's not why we do member-only small groups. There are various reasons. I'll give you two. The first one has A and B, and then number two. First, because in the New Testament, it appears to us that the pattern for every Christian is they became accountable to a local church. So they didn't join an auxiliary ministry of the church at Corinth or the church at Philippi and say, hey, I'm part of the church at Philippi. No, no, no. They were accountable to the whole congregation and then whatever that congregation did, they were part of it. And so for the first few years of Grace Church's life, we heard various people say, I belong to Grace Church or something like that. But we had never seen them on a Sunday, and they certainly weren't a covenant member. More on that in a moment. 
And so to encourage people to join the congregation and be accountable to the whole body, we said, well, let's not make the small groups um, an inadvertent reason that people think they belong to the church. All right, so since about 2000, I think 12, we've been doing member only. And second, under that first reason, is for mutual encouragement among our members. We've just noticed that since we've done this, it has maximized congregational profit. So if I don't know Bob or Sue or Bill, and no disrespect if that's anybody's name in the room, I'm just throwing out random ones. If I don't know who that person is sitting in the other corner of the room in my small group, I may be less inclined to share some of the deep, sensitive things going on in my life. But if I know all you, and we're all in covenant together, we've just noticed that we, brothers and sisters, are more apt to share and to really engage with each other. Uh, The second thing I'll say about our structure is not only member only and so forth, but we also shuffle them up. So Pastor Nathan, who's at the welcome table today, we hope you'll stop by and meet him if you don't know him. Um, Pastor Nathan just shuffles up our groups every semester. And so for four to six months, you're with a new batch of church members, and that's because we all want to know each other and be engaged in each other's lives. And it's not the way, but it's a way to cross-pollinate. And there's some geographic, you know, kind of, influences on how they get shuffled and that's for obvious reason but we do want to shuffle up on these nights or whenever the groups meet third a biblical vision for what we're going to do january to june i mentioned earlier we call it teleos academy teleos is a greek word that means mature or complete or perfect or whole the new testament uses the greek word teleos a number of times, to describe God's ultimate goal for His people and for the Christian life. So, for example, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, listen carefully. We proclaim Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man teleos, complete, in Christ. So Paul straight up says, the whole reason we preach Jesus and Jesus only is because what you feed on is what you'll mature into. And we proclaim Jesus because we want everyone complete, telling us in Christ. Ephesians 4.13 Until we all attain. How many? All of us. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a teleos man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We want to be that full of Jesus together. That's God's plan. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the teleos, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The New American Standard translates it mature. Solid food is for the mature. The way a baby no longer only lives on milk, is through practice over time in portions. And if my children, I'm blessed with six of them, were still only taking milk at their current age, I would be very concerned about their 
health. And you should too. And if believers in Christ start off on milk, praise God, we should. But if way down the line you're only taking milk, spiritually speaking, we should all be concerned about each other. And so teleos in Hebrews is what God says should happen to us all. We should be mature enough to take the meat of God's Word. And then one more verse, Matthew 5.48. Therefore, you are to be perfect, teleos, just as your heavenly Father is perfect, teleos. Well, what a standard. So as I mentioned, the biblical vision for our teleos academy, what we're about to do in the book of Exodus, January through June in our small groups, is for that biblical reason. Here's the practical vision for teleos. We have a material goal, what will we use? And we have a meditation goal, what we pray we do. The material goal is God willing, the Lord will allow this local church to develop 40 individual studies through the books of the 66 books of the Bible, squeezed down into 40 separate studies, that will each be 12 weeks long. So 40 12-week studies that would cover all 66 books of the Bible in 12-week portions. That's what we're doing now in Exodus January to June. That's the material. The meditation goal. If you hang around this church for 40 years, now I'm going to pause and say, at some point in your life, please join one and just stay with it. Thick, thin, Lean years, years of plenty. Struggle years, years of growth. Just join one and stay there. Whichever one it is, if they preach the Gospel, unfold the Word, care for your soul, that's a good one. Just join it. Stay at it. Don't leave it. And so when I say if you stay here for 40 years, I don't think that should be a, surprise, a shock to anybody. I'm not saying you have to stay at this one for 40, but it, someday soon, find one and just stay at it. Barring divine providences that are outside of your control. If you'll stay at this one for 40 years, I don't know what you'll do, but I do know this. You will have the opportunity to have your own handwritten notes on every single passage of the Bible. I would love for you to give that to your grandkids and them to add their notes and give it to their grandkids. And them to add their notes and give it to their grandkids should Jesus tarry. So that's the meditation goal. Finally, a call to action about Teleos study. Uh, Teleos Academy for, for January to June through Exodus. This is the first time in the history of the church that we have moved Teleos from the fall to the spring semester. The reason we did it is because just in the natural kind of current calendar of things, you can get more weeks in this semester than you can in the fall semester in an unbroken way. In the fall, of course, you have Thanksgiving and Christmas and fall break and Labor Day and so forth, and there's reasons that the calendar just gets broken up. Less so in this semester. So, God willing, we will take 24 weeks to do a 12-week study. Which means, if your group meets every other week, you have two weeks 
to do one week's worth of the study. And instead of as we used to do, getting together and discussing two weeks of the study in one night, you will have two weeks to discuss one week's worth of the study. Make sense? It should also become much more sustainable. If you miss a day, you're not behind. If you miss 12, you might be. But I want to say something loud and clear. If you never do the study, if you never crack open the workbook, please go to your small group with an ink pen or a pencil and your workbook and write down the insights that God gives to your brothers and sisters. Because He didn't give them to them only for them. He gives them to them for you also. Because every teleos verse I read to you a minute ago was written to groups of believers, not one individual. We grow better together than we do by ourselves. So that's a call to action. Finally, let me preview for you what I've been talking about. This beautiful volume is Exodus, I Am is the subtitle. It is... 265 pages of blessing ready for you that, Lord willing, we will hand out to our church members next weekend on Saturday at our encouragement weekend right here at Greenlaw, Saturday evening, Lord willing. I am so deeply thankful for the labors of the people who've put it together. We write them all in-house. They're not intended to be impressive. We're not writing them for the broader world, though they're welcome to use them if they want to. These are written by us for us. I had nothing to do with this one. I am so thankful that for the last 24 months, without most of us even knowing it was happening, your brothers and sisters were praying for you with their nose in God's Word. Day after day, week after week, for almost two years, Jeff and Carmen Hill labored over the book of Exodus for you. Nathan Sawyer, every Monday, I see his calendar because I have it on my gadget. More on that, that's irrelevant. Every Monday, he's laboring in the book of Exodus for you. Rick Talley, for a year, laboring in the book of Exodus for you. Those people put this together. And then our sweet sister Emily Bailey really burned the candle at both ends. And to be honest, did way more in way less time than we should have asked her to do. And she put the whole thing together and got it published, and here it is, and we got boxes and boxes of them ready to give to you next Saturday. What I'm saying is, people work super hard to make your sanctification the most low-hanging fruit possible. If you'll just read Exodus and answer these questions, I can't guarantee it because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I do know the Holy Spirit, and I do know He loves to bless His Word. I believe you'll be more like Jesus in June than you are today if you'll just go through it. And if you'll go through it together, we'll all be a lot more like Him. I'm so thankful for this. And uh, they don't know I'm going to do this, and I have no idea if they're in the nursery or in the room. But I have gift cards for those four people. So afterward, would Rick Talley and Emily Bailey and Nathan Sawyer and Jeff and Carmen Hill please come get from me from your church your Aldo's gift card. And if you don't get the garlic knots and the Willie Cheech and Bob with the mango chutney, I'm not going to forgive you. It's really good. Okay? So, can we all just, in gratitude to God and thankfulness for our brothers and sisters, just give a huge round of applause for their labor of love.
Amen, amen, amen. There were other people that had contributions to make to this study, but those folks definitely carried the heaviest load. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, let's do a little dive in the deep fountain of Exodus in preparation for where the Lord may take us over the next months. In a moment, we'll read from Exodus 14, but let me prime your pump just a little bit. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's also the second book in the first section of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy is one complete section within the larger Bible. Those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are known as the Pentateuch, the book of the law, the first five These five initial books were written by Moses in a really one interconnected narrative. Where one leaves off, the next one picks right up. For example, the second book, Exodus, picks right up where the first book, Genesis, left off. Leviticus, the third book, picks right up where Exodus, the second book, left off, and so on. Page 15 of your Exodus study in the notes says this. The events that unfold in Exodus are a continuation of what God has already done in Genesis. Fulfilling the promises that God made to Abraham, Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord filling the tent of meeting. And the book of Leviticus, the next one, continues the narrative. Quote, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Leviticus 1.1. You can clearly see that they're interconnected as one narrative. Two things that I'll say by overview, by way of overview for Exodus, and then we'll read the text. The first thing that we want to note about Exodus is that it is not a standalone book of the Bible. I've already talked about the interconnectedness to the first five books, but also to the whole of the Scriptures. Those first five books of the Bible, Exodus included, serve to set the stage as the foundation for the remainder of the entire Scripture. And I'm eager to see how the Holy Spirit who inspired the book of Exodus will remarkably bless us this semester individually and as a local church if we will together immerse ourselves in His written revelation. So the first overview note I'm making for Exodus is that it fits in the broader context of the Pentateuch, verse 5, and in the larger story of Scripture. Mark Dever calls Exodus, quote, the center of the Bible because of how many times the Old Testament and the New Testament refer to the events in the book of Exodus and the Exodus in particular. At some point, get on your Bible software or app And just look at how many times the Exodus is referred to in the Old Testament after Exodus or in the New Testament. The Gospel of John heavily borrows from the book of Exodus, referring as we heard in our prayer time to the Lord Jesus as the I Am who revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is an unfolding of God's original intentions when He gave the law to Moses on top of the mountain at Sinai. Jesus on the mountain in Matthew. So the more we understand the book of Exodus, the more we'll understand the whole Bible. That's overview point number one. Overview point number two. 
That second comment I want to make about Exodus is that the book itself has a very clear structure. 40 chapters, sometimes we just get lost. It has a very clear and actually very simple structure. As we begin to study this book, I believe it would help us to know where we're going before we begin. Page 15 of your Teleos study, borrowing from Kenneth Turner's outline of Exodus, says the three parts of the book of Exodus are this, chapters 1-18, through the Lord's gracious redemption of Israel. Chapters 19-24, to the Lord's gracious covenant with Israel. Chapters 25-40, to the Lord's gracious presence in the midst of Israel. His redemption, His covenant, His presence. 1-18, to 19-24, to 25-40, Put even more simply, our fellow church members who wrote this study for us pointed out that the Exodus material is basically this. The Exodus, the covenant, the tabernacle in those same chapter divisions. Well, with that in mind, we'll focus our attention for today's sermon on the event in the book that gives the book its current title. The Exodus. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. And let your eyes fall on verse 13. Exodus 14, we'll read verses 13 and 14. Hear the word of the same God who gave these words to Moses. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Selah. Join me as we pray for God's help. Oh God, would you fight for us as we keep silent. In Jesus' name, Amen. The life of Moses is absolutely fascinating. It is A, true in everything it records for you in Scripture. It is non-fiction. It happened in human history. And B, it is better than any novel you could ever read. If you're looking for some good leisure reading material, I double-dog dare you to read Exodus. It is fascinating just in its content, and it is true in what it says, and it happened in human history. Like the book of Exodus has three parts, so also does the life of Moses. 40-40-40. The first 40 years of Moses' life are about his birth and his being a prince in Egypt. The second 40 years, from years 40 to 80, are about him being a shepherd in Midian, including his marriage. His final 40 years, from years 80 to 120 when he died, are about him being the deliverer and leader of Israel. D.L. Moody summarized the three parts of Moses' life this way. Moses spent 40 years, Moody said, thinking that he was somebody. 40 years learning that he was nobody and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Today's focus picks up when Moses was 80 years old, 
between the second and third, uh, pardon me, the yeah, second and third portions of his life story. The exodus of Israel from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea is contained in chapters 12 through 14 of Exodus. So if you didn't know where that was, now you do. And it serves as the heart of the book and a major theme of the whole Bible. We'll look at one point from chapter 12, one from 13, and one from 14. Chapter 12 is about the Passover. You've heard much about that already in today's service, including in our Lord's Supper instructions. Please don't take the Lord's Supper today if you think that it will save you. Please don't take the Lord's Supper today if you think that it will help God like you more. Don't take it if you're superstitious and want a little blessing from the God out there. The Lord's Supper is a direct correlation to the Passover, which we find in Exodus 12. The instructions to Israel for the Passover are contained in this chapter, chapter 12. The Passover was the tenth and final plague, if you will, that God brought upon Egypt for not letting His people go from their bondage and slavery. Why did God want the Pharaoh to let Israel go? Not so that their life would be more comfortable. He actually tells them the reason. Let them go so that they may worship Me. The release from their bondage was for the purpose of worship. God's instructions for the Passover, the sacrifice that was to be made, the way it was to be prepared, are contained in Exodus 12, 3-11. A lamb was to be offered, an unblemished one. If that would have been too much for one household, then two households were to band together to make that lamb sacrifice. You can't imagine the slaughter in Egypt on the date that the Passover came. The blood ran from every little canal beside every little dirt road. God's reason for the Passover sacrifice is in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12. Listen to why He told them to do it. Exodus 12.12 For I, the Lord said, will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, chapter 12 tells us why the Passover existed. It also explains that this event in Israel's history was to become a memorial for every successive generation. Verse 23 of chapter 12, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house and smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as He has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshipped. On page 113 of your teleos study, Desmond Alexander's work is quoted who said this, the Passover was a pervasive theme 
in Old Testament Israel's life, for the Israelites, the Passover was the most significant redemptive event in their history. That's not an overstatement. Just imagine. You've heard this story before, at least most of us. Now try to imagine it. Try to envision it. The older generation who had experienced that fateful night in Egypt, the Passover happening, the death of the firstborn in all the houses of Egypt, in all their livestock, the cattle, the sheep, the firstborn of every womb, dead in every Egyptian household from the Pharaoh all the way down to the commoner. Hundreds of thousands of dead corpses in Egypt. Now imagine, that generation explaining that night to their grandchildren when they were observing the Passover in a new land. And to their children's children's children. And how each successive generation would explain it to their grandchildren. Could you imagine the toddler sitting on the grandfather's lap the first time it was explained to them when that grandfather was one of the ones who came out of Egypt and he told about the sacrifice and how he searched for and found the lamb of choice unblemished. How he slit its throat while it remained silent. How the blood was poured out and how all the meat was prepared for the meal. How that grandfather then went on to explain to his tiny granddaughter how he took a hyssop branch and dipped it down into the basin of blood and slathered it all over the right and the left doorpost and all over the lintel above the headway. And then how he and his dear wife, that little girl's grandmother and all their children that little girl's parents aunts and uncles went inside that house and did nothing except trust the lord i can almost hear the raspy voices of that leather-skinned grandfather telling his great grandchildren the story again the next year by quoting to them exodus 12:29 now listen to it Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle, Pharaoh arose in the night and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night. And the Pharaoh said, Rise up. Get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. I can almost hear that aged grandfather capping off his family devotion with these words. That's how your grandmother and I were saved from the tyranny of our enemy. Dear friends, if you can't already see how the Passover ties into the main story of the whole Bible, it would be my great joy to make it explicit for you. The main event of the Bible is not the Passover. It's not the Exodus. It's the cross. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain the connection to you by again borrowing from our dear brothers and sisters on page 113. Listen carefully. In the New Testament, the death of Jesus Christ bears a strong connection to the Passover. 
Quoting Desmond Alexander again, our notes say, the crucifixion of Jesus, the central redemptive event in the Bible, is in various ways linked to the Passover. First, the Gospels all highlight how the death of Jesus took place in Jerusalem when the Jews were experiencing, enjoying, observing the Passover by keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Second, Matthew, Mark, and Luke present the Last Supper with Jesus as the Passover meal, emphasizing its importance and the special significance of Jesus' words and actions. And third, our notes say, the actual death of Jesus is linked to the offering up of the Passover sacrificial lamb because Jesus' bones are not broken. His death resembles the Passover sacrifice. The New Testament draws the tie between the cross of Jesus and the Passover of Israel. Then the Teleos notes add these heart-igniting comments. For the people of Israel, the Passover provided a means of atonement, the sacrifice of an animal, purification, the application of the blood of that animal, and sanctification, the eating of the sacrificial meal. It was God's means of ransoming His people, cleansing them, making them holy so that they could dwell in His, so that He could dwell in their midst. For the church today, God accomplishes these things through the death of Jesus. One more paragraph, well worth reading. By linking the crucifixion of Jesus to the Passover, the New Testament church drew attention to the redemptive nature of Jesus' death. Like the original Passover sacrifice, Christ's death atoned for the sins of His people. His blood purified and cleansed believers. His body sanctified those who ate the Lord's Supper. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 10 where he emphasizes how believers, by eating bread and drinking wine that represent respectively the body and blood of Jesus, participate in His sacrificial death. As a result of Christ's atoning death, individuals are made holy and perfect. That is a very, very helpful commentary and worth reading five or six times whatever week you're doing that study to make sure that you're following along with everything that's being expressed in those wonderful truths that are repletely biblical. Let me say it as simply as I know how. Everything I've been saying so far under point number one. Israel was saved on Passover night because God saw the blood. That's why they were saved. So it begs the question, are you hiding beneath the blood of Jesus? Are you taking refuge beneath the blood of Jesus? Now I can imagine that there were some people in some of the houses like me. I've never butchered an animal one day in my life. I don't know how to do it. I can read instructions and give it my best shot. But there had to be some country boys in Israel who knew how to do it. Now, Jason Jarvis and I just recently tag-teamed on a little woodworking project. And I say tag-teamed in scare quotes because I did nothing and he did everything. Power tools are like an extension of his body. They just do stuff that they're meant to do. I can't cut a straight line to save my life. Now, if... I and my neighbor were sacrificing a lamb in Egypt for Passover and one of them was really good at it and I'm not, then I might just lean on his expertise. 
But if we're both terrible at it, and we butcher the whole thing in unimpressive fashion, then surely I wouldn't go to bed at night with blood on my doorpost thinking how good I am at sacrificing an animal. Nor would the good butcher lay in his bed at night and think to himself, now I know God's going to like my work better than He likes my neighbor's work because of how well I did with my sacrifice. The issue isn't how precise are you in every little detail that you do. The issue is, are you trusting in the blood? That's it. And every single house, whether trained and skilled or novice like me, every single house that had the blood was passed over. Are you hiding beneath the blood? Or as John the Baptist would say concerning the Lord Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or John the Revelator, the Apostle who had leaned on Jesus' breast the very night of the first Last Supper, who said in the book of Revelation, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. Are you hiding beneath the blood? One little comment about chapter 13 and then our final point from chapter 14. First, the Passover. Second, the presence. In chapter 13, I'd love to expound on a number of things that are insightful from this chapter and applicable to our lives today, but I'll simply just read a few verses and make one gospel application that in my notes is a total of one sentence long. The presence of God, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. So you can see the situation. They're beside the sea in martial array. God took them there. Verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by diet day to lead them on the way in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now you can see even more clearly because you see the most important person in the camp. God. God is graciously leading His people. In fact, He's never taking away a visible manifestation of His presence. Fire and cloud day and night, God's people know God's presence. And here's the Gospel application that's one sentence long before we go to point three. Those whom God saves through the sacrifice of the sheep, God leads with the sweet presence of the Good Shepherd. Here's the promise God will make to you. Not I'll set you free from that old, terrible life in Egypt so you can live more comfortably in the way you want to. No. I will save you from that bondage so that you can have Me as your greatest treasure. That's the sacrifice of the Gospel of Christ. He sets us free from ourselves for 
Himself from our sin for our Savior. He is the treasure. And if you don't want Jesus, you do not want any of the salvation that He provides. Third, not only the Passover and the presence of God, but finally the parting of the sea. Verse 8 of chapter 14. I can imagine Israel standing on that seashore having not gone the way that they might have thought would have been best. But God having led them by His presence to this place, and now, as the hymn writer said, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. But God hath led me safe thus far, and He will lead me home. I can imagine them standing there saying, okay. Verse 8, chapter 14. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And He chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. Checkmate, right? Sea on one side, big time army on the other. Little militia of uh, you know, ragtag Israelites in the middle. There's no way to go. It's proverbial rock and hard place. Immovable object, unstoppable force. What do you do? I'll tell you what not to do. Verse 11. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you while we were in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That's easy for us to critique them, isn't it? But what about you when life doesn't go quite the way you wanted it to? So what does God do next? He hears the complaint of His trapped people. And instead of flicking them off of His globe in His holy and righteous upholding of His character, He shows off instead the great and gracious heart that He had had for them from the beginning and He reveals to them His unlimited power. It's the text I read right at the beginning of the sermon focus from chapter 14, verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever, for the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then, this is so significant, verse 19, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. The psalmist said, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and He rescues them. You see what just happened? God stood between them and their enemy. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is our God, Grace Church. We simply must, must, 
we simply must read the rest of this chapter. I told you it was fascinating. I can't say it any better than this. Verse 23. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and He made them drive with difficulty so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and their left. Verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Don't you know they were scared the night before? God didn't remove their fear. He replaced it with a greater fear. Just like when King Jesus calms the waves and the seas in the boat, prior to which all the disciples are scared for their life. And then when He says, hush be still, the Bible tells us that they were terrified. Why? Because they realized that the God who made the sea was standing on the bow of their boat. And when Israel was scared of Egypt the night before, and they saw all Egypt perish the day of, then the people, verse 31, feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. The book of Romans tells us that the whole reason God raised up Pharaoh is so that God could kill him and show that he's more powerful than any man, any nation, any empire, any kingdom on the face of the earth. It's for good reason that the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea become a major theme throughout the remainder of the Bible following Exodus 14. You see, these events which really happened in human history, there's no make-believe in this. This is no fairy tale. This isn't the imagination of a man. It's the activity of the only true God in human history rescuing His people. These events which really happened in human history were meant to point us to even greater events that really happened in human history. Page 23. The Old Testament prophets point back to the Exodus as they proclaim a, proclaim a new and better Exodus to come. Jesus, like Israel, Matthew 2, is called out of Egypt. Like Israel, He's tempted in the wilderness, Matthew 4. Upon the birth of Jesus as a Young child, the death of the innocents at the hand of Herod, Matthew 2, echoes the policies of Pharaoh to kill all the uh, Hebrew boys, Exodus 1. 
Jesus not only celebrates the Passover meal, Matthew 26, but in a remarkable theological extension, is Himself identified as the Passover Lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, and the supernatural rock who followed Israel in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10, I could continue. What these commentators are saying is clear. The Bible points and teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great fulfillment of all the mighty power that God ever displayed at any point in human history, including and maybe especially the Exodus. What I'm saying is this, if you learn about the ten plagues for the next six months, and you figure out how to build a model of the tabernacle, and you draw pictures of the golden calf that Aaron and all the pagans made at the bottom of the mountain when God was giving Moses the law, if you study the parting of the Red Sea and you trace the maps in the back of your Bible and you figure out your best guess at what route they took and you miss Jesus, then you miss the whole point. Jesus' earthly ministry, so says your Teleos Academy study, began with His baptism. In analogy with the Exodus experience, baptism is Jesus' Red Sea crossing. The location of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, quote, draws a close connection between Jesus' sermon with its focus on the law and giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Then our church members, whoever wrote page 23, said this, Jesus is also the true and better Moses, the true bread from heaven, and the flesh-wrapped tabernacle of God among us. He is the faithful high priest, the spotless sacrifice, the true and better Israel, and the firstborn of all creation. Brothers and sisters, if you want to more deeply understand and appreciate the Gospel of Jesus Christ, I recommend to you Exodus. I again borrow from those notes for the application and then conclusion. Page 16. The story of Exodus does not actually end in chapter 40. The story of Exodus does not end until we come to the cross and empty tomb of the Lord Jesus or even beyond, not until the second coming of Christ. In other words, seeing how we as Christians fit into the story must be seen in light of how Christ completes the story. We do not draw a straight line from something in Exodus to our lives. That's not how to apply Exodus. You're not Moses. We take part in the story by seeing how it fits in the whole story of the Bible, which comes to a conclusion in Christ, and then we begin to see more fully how this story affects the way we look at ourselves and at God. That's how to apply the book of Exodus. Or as was prayed in our prayer meeting, when the Lord Jesus took His inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain, and was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, as Moses' did when he received the law. Moses and Elijah also, we are told, showed up at that occasion of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. Moses came 1,500 years through redemptive history to join Jesus on that mountain, and then Elijah as well. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and in Luke 9.31, as was prayed a moment ago, Moses spoke to Jesus Quote, about the departure that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. And the word departure in the Greek, you don't even have to know Greek to know this word, exodos. Moses talked to Jesus about the exodus 
that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. What did Jesus do at Jerusalem? He died for you and me to set us free from Satan's tyranny, to release us from our sins so that we could go out of our bondage and worship our God. And Moses came to talk to Jesus not about the exodus that Moses did. Red Sea staff, aren't you impressed? No. Peter was impressed with Moses. Let's build him a temple. Let's build Elijah one too. Oh, Jesus, you can have one also. But Moses and Elijah aren't impressed with Moses and Elijah. They're impressed with the glory of Christ. And Moses is saying, you're the real Moses. You're the real deliverer. You're the real Savior. You're the one who really rescues God's people. And you do it with a different staff at Jerusalem. You do it with a different stick. Not with one you hold in your hand. But one that cruel men put together so that with their hands they could tack you to it. In God's providence, our plan this year on Sunday mornings is almost exclusively dedicated to the book of 2 Corinthians. And if you want to be really impressed, prepare to be underwhelmed. The only reason we're doing that is because we did 1 Corinthians last year. There's not a better book in the New Testament to study alongside Exodus than 2 Corinthians. Just go read chapter 3 and you'll know what I'm talking about. Guess when we planned to do Exodus? Last fall. But God in His kindness has just lined it up perfectly so that we'll study this personally and we'll hear 2 Corinthians congregationally and we'll see together what Paul said. You want the veil removed? You want to see glory? You want to live on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, not just visit it one time? You want your heart to be inflamed with the beauty of Christ? Go read Exodus and see that it's all about Jesus. We're under worse bondage in our sin than Israel ever was in slavery to Egypt. We need a greater deliverance. We need a greater deliverer than the Red Sea and Moses who himself was a sinful man that needed a Savior. And if Moses isn't saved by Jesus, Moses is not in heaven. But I believe that Moses looked to Jesus because the Bible says so in the Gospel of John. He wrote all five books of the Bible because he was writing, to quote Jesus, about Jesus. Just like Moses, we're lawbreakers and we are in desperate need of a Savior. And we need the One to whom Moses looked for his own salvation. We need the One to whom redeemed Israel looked. I don't know how many of them were actually saved. Hebrews tells us very clearly in chapter 3 it was not most of them. A few chapters later, they're throwing their gold down to make an idol in defiance against the God who saved them. They perished, to quote Hebrews, because of their unbelief. They're not regenerate. And I don't know how many were and how many weren't, but I do know this. The only people who will ever be in glory with the glorious Christ for all eternity, from the Old or New Testament era, from our own day, the only people who will ever be there are the people who will hide themselves beneath the blood and trust that God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. So here's my prayer for the book of Exodus, and I'll close. Two things. Number one, that we will not go through the book of Exodus, but the book of Exodus will go through us. That it will go deep in us. That God, the Holy Spirit who inspired Moses to write it, would draw us to Christ. That's my first prayer. And number two, 
that any lost person today or any day anybody walks through this study that any lost person would flee to Christ for refuge and be saved. What we're going to do today at the close of this sermon is sit silently while God fights for you. The way that's going to happen is some beautiful lyrics about the Passover are going to be sung and projected. We're just going to sit silent. If you want to sing along, you're more than welcome. After this hymn of God's great glory in the Passover, any who are going to partake in the Lord's Supper, again, that is for saved, baptized, forsaking sin, church members of any church that preaches the same gospel you heard me preach today. If that applies to you, you come. If it doesn't apply to you, for whatever reason, remain where you're at and seek the face of God. Following the Lord's Supper, our brother Brian will come close the service. So we'll sit silently. Let these words wash over your soul as you worship the King of glory. And then we'll partake in the Lord's Supper as God leads. Father in Heaven, thank You again for the privilege of having Your Word, Your own written revelation in our hands, in our laps, in our ears. And oh God, we thank You for the true and greater Moses, for the bigger Exodus, for the real Deliverer of Your people, the Lord Jesus who through His own blood as the Lamb of God saves us from our sins. And we look forward to that glorious day that Revelation 19 talks about when there will be night time not because the sun is so bright, the sun itself will be gone. There will be no nighttime in glory because the Lamb is the light. Oh, we look forward to that day and cause us to see glimpses of His light every day from now till glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Allow this meditation to take you to God's face.